Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, as we return to our study on Hebrews, where we were uh, for several months uh, before the um, before the new year. And uh, we will be for a few more months, by God's grace. And if you are new here, if you're a guest, we welcome you to Redemption Church. And uh, I'm glad you are here this morning. Uh, and this is our hope and prayer that all of us would meet with the living God as we gather to worship uh, in spirit and in truth, and as we gather to open God's word and um, uh, as he speaks to us through his word uh, by his spirit today. So as you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, uh, let me pray God's blessing uh, for our time this morning. Uh, Father God in heaven, thank you that you are a good and holy God. I got to thank you that it is by your grace that you gather your wayward people. God, we are broken. We are all in need uh, of your intervention in our lives. So God, I pray that as we continue to worship, as we've done through singing and prayer, through reading, uh, through fellowship, and as we will do uh, through communion, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would be at work in our hearts and minds. Uh, God, that, that by your word, through your word, you would uh, give us an understanding of your scriptures, that you would open our hearts to receive the gospel, that you would, by your spirit, convict us of sin, transform us to repent, to turn uh, from sin and idols and to turn toward you. God, I pray that this would happen uh, individually, as couples, as families, uh, as a church community seeking you. I got to thank you for your goodness to us and pray that in all things you would receive the glory, that we would receive great joy and that the good news of Jesus would go from this place to the nations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who for the sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. This is God's word. Friends, Jesus brings us to a progressive faith, a faith that is active something we cultivate and build upon together, and in so doing, experiencing great joy in Christ, both now and for eternity. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? You know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever had an experience in your life? I mean, maybe it's very physical when you're on top of a mountain and your whole life stands still and just the skies open up and you're like, this is it. Or maybe spiritually there's been a time in your life where perhaps uh, you have felt so close to God. And maybe it was a time at a youth camp when you were younger. Maybe it was at a specific worship service. Maybe it was under somebody's specific teaching. Maybe it was a season of life, maybe for your church or the tradition that you come from with your family that you just felt really rich, felt really deep, and you felt very connected to God and connected to each other. And then maybe some things changed, and over time 
you feel like you've lost that connection. You know, maybe you were in a youth group and you go to a retreat or a conference and you feel like, man, I feel so close to the Lord right now. I'm growing. This is great. And then a few months later, you're like, I don't know what happened. This season of life feels very spiritually dry for me. You know, maybe you were at a church and you just thought, man, this, everything about this church is great. And then maybe that church uh, closed, right? Or maybe you were in part of a tradition or a denomination and there were uh, some transitions that happened and you were thinking, what happened? I felt so connected, so close to God. I was growing by leaps and bounds. And then now months later, I feel dry. I feel like I'm not progressing like I should. I feel like maybe I'm not as close to the Lord. and I want to get back to that. I want to achieve that once again. You see, all of us have that in our seasons of faith. All of us have that in our uh, journey with Christ, that we'll have seasons that are like the ebbs and flows of the ocean, like we'll have mountaintop experiences, and then we'll have valleys. But the problem is, sometimes we lose sight and focus of what God is doing in our midst, even in the valleys, right? I mean, sometimes we think, I had this experience at this church or at this retreat or at this conference or at this season of life, and I want to get back there because over here I'm just not digging it. I'm not feeling it. And then we spend all of our energy to try to climb back up that mountain, right? I mean, I had those as a kid. I had those in college at certain retreats and conferences I would go to, and then later in life find out it's really hard to get back to that mountaintop experience. But here's what I want us to know. When we look at our journey of faith, we must find that our rootedness, our groundedness, the foundation of our faith is not an experience that we may have had or not a season of life that we maybe enjoyed or maybe a season of life that God really used. But our groundedness is not that experience that our groundedness is a person and his name is Jesus. And if we lose sight of who he is and what he's done, we will find ourselves tossed to and fro by the waves of life. And we'll find ourselves going through seasons of doubt and disbelief and ultimately, possibly, walking away from the faith. I've seen this in the lives of friends in recent years. Guys that I know that are, uh, at one time, I just thought were my contemporary spiritual giants, I mean, guys that were just growing in their faith by leaps and bounds, leading ministries, going overseas to do missions, and then now they're walking away from the faith. And I, I wonder why. How could somebody be so close to God and be doing great things for God, only later to just utterly walk away from the faith? Now, I'm not here to scare you, but I'm here to show us in Scripture some warnings, right? I'm not trying to... Uh, be a fear mongerer, but I want us to be honest about what Scripture says. There is a stark reality of what is called apostasy, of walking away from the faith, of, of clinging to doubt and disbelief rather than clinging to Christ. It's okay to have dry seasons of spirituality. It's okay to have times of a valley in your walk of faith. But during those seasons, are you clinging to your doubt and disbelief are you clinging to another season of life that was good? Because both of those things will ultimately lead you to ruin. We must turn to Christ and cling to him. And that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us here in this passage today, is, is how do we progress in the faith without sliding back? How do we make steps in the journey of faith and progress rather than falling away and ultimately walking away from the faith and disbelief? 
The author of Hebrews tells us a few things here that I want us to focus in on here. He starts by saying this in verses 1 and 2, lets us know that faith by nature is progressive. Faith is progressive. Listen to what he says here. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits you see, he starts, chapter 6 starts with the word therefore, after the previous uh, chapters has laid the foundations about who Christ is, what he's done. Jesus is our true and better priest. Jesus is our true and better messenger of God, our true and better rescuer, our true and better rest in God. His name is Jesus. And then he warns us, the, the author warns us, as Jesus is our great high priest in chapter 5, that you know what? It's hard to explain these things but we can become hard to them and eventually walk away from the faith. There's a warning. And then he writes this, therefore, let us leave elementary doctrine and go on toward maturity. So first and foremost, I want us to see this is that is progressive, right? We see here the author is saying, let us leave elementary doctrine and go on toward maturity. Now, we can look at that passage and say, why would he say leave elementary doctrine in Christ? I mean, isn't the elementary doctrine important? Absolutely. It is of utmost importance. But since faith is progressive, there is a purpose for the elementary doctrine. You see, what happens is we get stuck in our faith. We get stuck maybe in something that is important but has a purpose to be built upon, to project us towards something else. And that's what happens here in the first century church, as though uh, the early Christian church were getting stuck on the, the, the essentials, but the basics of the faith. And rather than seeing that those are signs that point us to something else to grow to maturity, they got stuck in kind of bickering over certain things, maybe certain practices. Now, have you seen this today? I mean, do you ever have you ever experienced this maybe uh, at a church you were a part of or maybe a season of life where you're thinking, you know, what is uh, I'm hoping to grow in the faith. I'm hoping our church would go toward this. But, you know, this one church I was at, we spent seven years just arguing about the color of the carpet. We never really talked about sanctification in Christ. Did it ever happen? It happened to me. I've experienced that. And it happened in the early Christian church. It's because it's so easy for us to forget that faith is progressive and is not some concrete thing that we just hone in on. So back to the mountaintop experience. For me, as an eight-year-old boy, I had an experience where Christ uh, awoke in my heart to understand the gospel. I was eight years old. I was at my uncle's church in Kentucky. And as he was facilitating the Lord's Supper, breaking the bread and presenting the elements and saying, this represents the broken body of Christ. This represents the shed blood of Christ. You have forgiveness of sin. A light bulb went off. It was the Holy Spirit saying, Jeremy, that's the gospel. Get it. Now, as a young man at eight years old, the first thing I did was uh, meet with my uncle and my father, and we prayed that I wanted to receive Christ and become a Christian. And two weeks later, I was baptized in a creek. So I wrote down the dates in my Bible. June 29th, 1986, I prayed to receive Christ. July 13th, 1986, I was baptized in a creek. And from age eight all the way up into my young 20s, if I ever had a moment of doubt 
or disbelief. If I ever had a moment in my life where I thought, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I'm not sure if I'm walking tight with the Lord, I would point back to that experience. That was my mountaintop experience. I would say, if you want to know why I'm a Christian, it's because on June 29th, I prayed a prayer. It's because on July 13th, 1986, I was dunked in a creek with water snakes, and I became a Christian. It wasn't intentional. It was just a creek. They were there. It wasn't like we were snake handling. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. There were crawfish, too. How about that? There were crawfish. But when I was in my 20s, uh, something occurred to me is that I was rooting my faith on an experience I had, a good experience that God used in my life. It was a good thing to pray a prayer. It was a good thing to obediently be dunked in a creek. But you know what? Those experiences were testaments of who Christ is and what he's done. Those experiences did not save And as a young man from age 8 to 20, I kind of honed in on that as my, my block of faith that I held tightly to not realizing that those were evidences of God's grace to progress me in my faith. You with me? And this is what happens in all of us in our Christian lives as we get stuck in certain things, not realizing that faith is not a concrete, tangible item that we have and we hold and we keep, but rather faith is a progressive action. In fact, the word faith means ongoing relational trust in God. That's what faith means. It is not an intellectual checklist. It is not an experiential moment only, but rather faith, by definition, is ongoing relational trust in God. And that's just what it means. And so the author of Hebrews says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on toward maturity. Now, let me be clear, because I saw that and I was like, why would he tell us just to leave the elementary doctrine? Leaving does not mean forgetting. Okay? The author of Hebrews is not saying forget the simple stuff, forget the basics of the gospel, and let's go on to the deeper five-syllable theological gospel. Mm Mm-mm. Leaving means progressing here, but not forgetting. It's like when you get married, you are to leave and cleave, right? You get married, yet you leave your family of origin, and you cleave to your spouse, but you don't forget your family of origin. Hopefully not. Hopefully you have a good rapport and a relationship where you have holidays together. You go visit. You don't leave them as in forgetting, but you, but you leave them. Because you progress from singleness to, to marriage and as a family. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us, is that we are to progress in the faith because faith is active. Faith is ongoing. It is relational trust that is put into practice day to day. So to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ is to have a foundation that propels you toward maturity. It's a, it's a progressive thing, which is why Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and the day of eternity. Amen. Right? Faith is progressive. You grow in the grace and knowledge. So I want to ask you this. What does being stuck look like in your personal journey of faith? Are you stuck in some hardship? Are you stuck in sin? Are you stuck on a mountaintop experience that is good and God has used it 
Are you stuck in a tradition that God used for a season to grow you, but now he's propelling you to something different? And if so, figure out what that is. Jot it down. Pray about it. Confess it to somebody and say, I'm stuck in this area in my faith. And then we repent and believe. We turn from that and we say, I want to progress in my faith in Christ. We leave the elementary doctrine, not forgetting it, but in thankfulness saying, God, thank you for the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, by God's grace, I'm going to progress toward maturity with that. So first and foremost, we must see that faith is progressive. Secondly, I want us to see that repentance, true repentance, is secure in Christ. You see, verse 3 and 4 says this, And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. You see, the author says this, We are to uh, repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, that's the foundation of our faith. That is the, the, the core doctrine of being a Christian. The elementary doctrine is simple. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said that in Mark 1.15. He, he said, Here, here's the gospel. The good news that God saves sinners. Repent and believe. That's it. And that guides everything else we do, right? We turn from sin. We turn from idols. We turn from our own securities, and then we turn to Christ, and we believe with ongoing relational trust in a progressive faith. But we also have to remember that repentance is secure in Christ. Because Scripture makes clear, the book of Hebrews talks about apostasy, of falling away from the faith, of walking away from the faith, and verse 4 is an utterly terrifying statement. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If then, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That's a a scary couple of sentences, is it not? To say, if you fall away from the faith, it is impossible to be restored. That scares me. In college, I had this moment where I was thinking, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I mean, because I always pointed back to, to getting baptized and praying that prayer. But then, God's grace, the Holy Spirit gave me understanding as I was reading Scripture to see that repentance in Christ is secure. Repentance toward other things is not secure. That's the point. You see, the way the author writes this is saying it's impossible. Okay, verse 3 is important. We will do this if God permits. So you see this big umbrella that God is in charge here. God is in control. If God permits you to come to faith, you will come to faith. If God permits you to believe, you will believe. If God permits you to obey, you will obey. And that's security for you and I. And then verse 4, it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have once been enlightened. Here's the good news. If you have not been enlightened, you can't fall away from that. (laughs) Right? If you're not a Christian, you're not falling away from the faith. You've not received the faith yet. So there's hope for you. Secondly, those who have tasted the heavenly gift, (coughs) excuse me, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, 
If God has granted you an understanding of the gospel, it is so sweet. You have to believe it or you have to walk away from it. That's it. And God makes it clear that as, as you taste God's goodness, as you share in the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit gives you understanding in your mind, if he permits you to understand and permits you to believe and you repent and you say, I'm done with sin, I'm done with idols, I want to ongoingly put my trust in Christ. If you experience that sweetness and it is true and real, you cannot fall away unless you choose to walk away. And when you choose to walk away, you cannot be restored. And that is terrifying to me. To think that I could face my Savior who is saying, I'm going to lavish upon you my goodness and my grace. I'm going to show you the beauty of Christ. I'm going to change your life and to look him in the eye and say, no thanks. And to walk away is a very real reality. And it scares the dickens out of me. But here's what happens. Is we see that folks do not have secure repentance in Christ will easily fall away. Right? If, you, if you're not trusting ongoingly that Christ is forgiving you and restoring you and, and maturing you, well, of course you're going to fall away. If you put your repentance, the security in your good works, you will fail and be disappointed and walk away. If you put your security of your faith and your intelligence and the second you forget how to spell sanctification, you panic and say, I must not be a Christian. If you put your security in your good deeds and your good moral living, the second you click on the wrong thing, you feel like your whole faith is ruined. But if you repent toward Christ, you are secure. Though you fail, though you fall, though you sin, it's because as God draws you, as he permits you to understand the gospel, as you taste the sweetness of, of a heavenly gift as you share in the Holy Spirit, you will progress in the faith in such a way, the only way you won't progress in the faith is if you choose to not progress in the faith. And you say, I walk away. At which point, Scripture says, it is impossible to be restored. That's what Scripture tells us is the unforgivable sin. You look in Matthew and people are, asking Jesus about these things, and he says a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about. It's when the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind to understand, and the Holy Spirit lets you taste the sweetness of heaven, and the Holy Spirit is something that you are sharing in, in community with others, and it says you have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's the Holy Spirit, and if you blaspheme him by saying, I don't want it, forget it, You look at this in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ. Go on to maturity. You see, faith is progressive, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. You see, repentance is secure as we turn from dead works and faith toward God, which is important. Repentance is a two-fold situation. You turn from sin, from idols, from dead works. But turning from something's not enough. Because you could turn from sin and turn toward your internet software that you think will save you. 
You could turn from sin and turn toward a certain support group. You could turn from sin and turn toward some intellectual ascent that you hope will make you a good, better person. And that is not secured repentance. True repentance is turning from sin, from idols, from dead works, turning toward God. Verse 1, faith toward God. Faith there is not only a progressive, ongoing relational trust, but the word faith carries with it the concept of faithfulness, a constant clinging to God. Progressive, ongoing, clinging to God. So I asked you before, what does being stuck look like in your personal faith? Are you stuck in sin? Are you stuck in tradition? Are you stuck in self-improvement? Are you stuck in um, a conceptual block faith that you're just trying to keep and package all neat and tidy? And secondly, I want to ask you this. Are you faithfully clinging to God constantly? (coughs) Excuse me. There's a great book of collection of prayers based on Puritan writings called The Valley of Vision that says, I need to repent, repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. A repentance is not only a one-time turning, but an ongoing clinging and faithfulness toward God. Progressive faith means ongoing clinging to God. So I want us to see that clearly, friends. The first and foremost is that faith is progressive. Secondly, our repentance, thank God, is secure in Christ. Not secure in anything you do, but secure in Christ. Faith toward God, clinging to God in Christ. May we follow the words of Jesus and the truth that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Thirdly, I want us to see this, is that foundations exist to be built upon. Excuse me. Foundations exist to be built upon. A foundation does not exist just to be a foundation. A foundation in and of itself is just a foundation. It's not, you know, you just got it, you're like, wow, that's a glorious pile of bricks, right? There was a church that I was in the area that for years, I mean, a friend of mine was on staff there, and for years uh, he came at the tail end of a church split where they had a big building campaign, and like, we're going to build this new sanctuary, and they built a foundation, the church fell apart, and then my friend got hired there with 20 people, and they met in the, you know, a classroom whose window overlooked this glorious foundation that just sat there for a decade. To no point, no purpose. You see, foundations exist to be built upon, which is why the author says we leave the elementary doctrine to go on toward maturity because faith is progressive, right? Uh, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God because faith toward God is secure. Repentance in Christ is secure. But thirdly, foundations exist to be built upon. This is why he says, don't lay again a foundation. The foundation's been laid. Now we're to build upon it, which is what the author lays out here for us. You see, Christ is our foundation, not us. Christ is our foundation, not our tradition. Christ is our foundation, not our intellect. Christ is our foundation, not our good works. Christ is our foundation, not our morality. Christ is our foundation. 
and his foundation for us exists so that we may build upon it. Paul writes in Hebrews that we are the body of Christ that is to be grown toward mature manhood. Right? Christ is the head. He is our foundation, and we grow as a body into him. Building is an active, participatory situation. As faith is progressive and active, it also is, is a participatory thing. that We all help bring a brick and build it up together. <clears throat> this French author, who I can't say his name, I'm so embarrassed to say that I can't say his name. His first name is Antoine, but his last name is something else. <laughs> but he wrote this. You literary folks can just say, oh, you don't know that guy? Um, he says, if you want to build a ship... Don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them to tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that as if God permits this, we taste the heavenly gift. We will be enlightened. We share in the Holy Spirit. We taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. We're not handed a, a blueprint of how to. We're not told, collect the wood, build this, you do that. But rather, look at the beauty of the Lord. Look at, look at his goodness. Look how secure your repentances in Christ as you cling to God in Christ. Look how wonderful and sloppy, but how beautiful your progressive faith can be. You see that, you taste it, you experience it. It's like you see the beauty of the sea and you say, I'm going to build a ship. The sea's amazing. And often the elementary doctrines of Christ that the writer of Hebrews is saying is like the people saying, your job is to collect wood. And you better collect it that way and stack it in that way. You, go nail that thing. Go hammer that thing the whole time you're in a sweaty, nasty workshop, never getting a glimpse of the ocean. And that is corrupt, false religion. That is a misunderstanding of the elementary doctrines of Christ that do not help us grow toward maturity. But rather, the beauty of the gospel is, is to see that the Holy Spirit <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Disgusting. I'm sorry. The beauty of the gospel is that by God's grace, by his will, the Holy Spirit enlightens us, verse 4 says. Gives us a taste of the heavenly gift that we share in the Holy Spirit. We taste the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and that propels us in a progressive faith whose repentance is secure in Christ to build on this foundation because we are so compelled by the beauty of Christ. I mean, nothing will stop us from building on this foundation. I mean, I, I want to build on the foundation. It'll be, it'll be sloppy because I'm an imperfect craftsman. All right, I'm not good at laying bricks. I'm not good at painting. I'm not good at nailing wood together. But nothing can stop me because I'm so propelled by the beauty of Christ that i, I got to build on this foundation. And I want to build on this foundation with you because God is gathering you with your hammers and screwdrivers. Man, let's build this thing. Let's not get stuck admiring the foundation from 2,000 years ago. 
Let us not get stuck bickering about what, what brick is prettier. Let us not get stuck admiring in nostalgic ways of somebody else's building. But rather, let us look at the beauty of Christ who enlightens our minds and says, here is, here is the goodness of God. Taste my word. Taste the heavenly things. Look at the Holy Spirit just wrecking lives with the gospel. This is glorious. Let's do this. Faith is active. And like James 2 says, faith without works is dead. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. That's every believer. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who does the work of ministry? Not just pastors and teachers. The saints. Every believer. You who have been made holy in Christ. That's what saint means. You've been made holy. You've been set apart for a holy purpose. The saints do the work of ministry. The saints for building up the body of Christ. The saints do that. Not just some hired pastor with a loud mouth and a bad cough and a skinny tie. For building up the body of Christ. We build on that foundation that is secure. We build on the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh, man. Does that excite anybody in this room? It's good stuff, man. It's good stuff to know that your faith is progressive. It's sloppy. It's clumsy. Praise the Lord, it's progressive. It's good news to know that your repentance is secure in Christ. You turn from dead works. You turn from sin. You turn from idols. You cling to Christ with all that you've got, and he will save you. He will keep you saved. You will not fall away if you cling to Christ. If you look to Christ and you say, don't want them, don't like them, I'd rather have my whatever tradition, my intellect, you will fall to your ruin and we will weep and mourn. But you cling to Christ, your salvation is secure from now forever. Your restoration is ensured. Your repentance is solid. And then we build on that foundation together as a bunch of clumsy, awesome, redeemed saints with hammers. That's insane. Fourthly and finally, got four points today, y'all. Whoop, whoop. Breaking all kind of barriers. That's what happened. You put a tie on me. If I wear a coat next week, we're going to have five points, yo. Put on some slacks, we'll be here forever. <laughs> Fourth point is this. We see faith is progressive. Repentance is secure in Christ. Foundations exist to be built upon. So let's build on it. Fourthly and finally, and this is the most important point, so please hang with me. God's goodness is the goal and the means. You with me? God's goodness is both the goal and the means. What I mean by that is this. The goal is to dwell in the presence of God for now and eternity. Like Psalm 16 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is both, God's goodness is both the goal and the means. But often we focus on one at the expense of the other. Sometimes we see God as a means to an end. We say, I want to enjoy heaven forever because there's naked babies with harps and lots of good music and food. I want to go there. And we neglect the fact that his goodness 
is the means by which we get there. Or we think he's like a Pez dispenser just to dish out grace anytime we have a moment of crisis. But scripture tells us that God's goodness is both the goal and the means. It's God's goodness and his presence forever that we strive for, that we experience now. But it's also his will, verse 3 says, that happens, that makes all this happen. It's God's will that things are permitted. It's God's will by which we are enlightened. It's God's will that we taste the heavenly gift. It's, by, it's God's will that we share the Holy Spirit. It's God's will that we taste the goodness of his word and the powers of the ages to come. This is why Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Oh, he's so good. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God is good, and that is our goal. But it's also our means. We are saved by grace through faith because he is good. We are created for good works, to do good works because he is good. And in so doing, we experience his goodness. Our lives display his work in us and through us. We don't earn his favor, but we obey to experience the joy of what it means to be favored by God. And that is such good news. God is both the journey and the destination. And a verse that I hope would change your life is from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you know that God sings over you? God rejoices over you. God exalts you with loud singing, with gladness. Does that register with you at all? When you look at your faith and you say, my faith is not progressive, I'm stuck in my faith, and I'm scared that I'm not repenting by clinging to Christ, but I'm clinging to my own securities and traditions, and I look at the foundation and think, what a beautiful foundation, and I'm not actively building upon it. (coughs) I'm so sorry, folks. Bronchitis is a sign that the world is still broken, but God is still good. But we look to God and say, God, you are good. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for, by grace, through faith, empowering us to believe this good news and to repent and that our repentance is secure. God, empower us to build on this foundation. God, thank you that your goodness is the goal and the means. God, thank you that you rejoice over us with gladness. Has anybody ever rejoiced over you? I mean, think about a moment of triumph in your life. Maybe you graduated high school or college or nursing school or med school, and your parents were cheering you on. Maybe you ran a marathon, or maybe you had some sort of moment in your life where people said, good job, we're so happy for you. Let's take you out to eat. The God of the universe rejoices over you with gladness. He is glad for you. He is glad that your faith is progressing. He is glad that you have repented and your repentance is secure in Christ. He is glad that you 
building, although it be clumsy, on his foundation. He is glad. He will quiet you by his love. When you panic, when you freak out and you say, man, I don't know if I'm a Christian. can't believe I sinned like that again. I'm freaking out about money. My relationships are tense. My job's horrible. Work is hard. School is hard. Scripture says he will quiet you by his love. He loves you. God is a father. You are his child, and he loves you. He loves you. With a never-ending, never-stopping, never-breaking, always-and-forever love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's my favorite. He's not going to lull you to sleep. He's going to scream at you, like, beautifully. Those of you with children may know this, and if not, just go home and YouTube this. It'll be the most spiritual two minutes of your day. There's this Sesame Street episode where Andrea Bocelli, Andrea Bocelli is putting Elmo to sleep. you got to watch this. It's great. Andrea Bocelli has just a fascinating voice, man. The man can sing, right? And he's putting Elmo to sleep, which, you know, Only watch it once if you don't have kids, otherwise we're concerned. If you have kids, watch it a bunch. But there's this scene where he's singing, you know, time to say goodnight. And he changes the words, like, here is your teddy bear, you said the alphabet. You know, it's interesting. And he tucks in Elmo, and Elmo falls asleep. And then the climax of the song comes where he's just belting out, just just really loud. And Elmo sits up and says, Mr. Bocelli, I'm trying to go to sleep. But when I read this verse this week, I thought, man, that's, that's what God does for us. He doesn't lull us to sleep and just tuck us in and walk away. But he, he sings loudly over us because he is happy to be our father. If you have children, you know what it's like. When you hold your baby in your arms and you think, I can't believe this is my child, your heart explodes with love. And the God of the universe sings like that over you. And may that compel us to have a progressive faith. May that compel us to cling to God in repentance, not in fear, not in pride, but knowing that we have a Father who sings loudly rejoicing over us and quieting our restless hearts with his love. And that's the good news of the gospel. In closing, I'll ask you this. If you were here and you were not a Christian, if you just have no faith in Christ whatsoever, what I want you to know more than anything is that in Christ you have a heavenly Father, a perfect God, heavenly Father who rejoices over you with singing and who will quiet you by his love and that clinging to him in Christ is your only hope. Clinging to anything else will lead to your destruction, period. There's no way around it. You will never be a good enough person apart from Christ. You will never be a smart enough person or a moral enough person. But in Christ, you were loved and accepted and rejoiced over by the God of the universe, and he will never turn his back on you ever. And I want you to know that. Come talk to me if you want to talk more about what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, all of us need to hear the call of the gospel to repent and to believe, to ongoingly, relationally trust in Christ, to cling to God in Christ personally, as families, as a church, 
and to act in that mission of building on that foundation, to invest in other believers, to grow in the faith together. I mean, can you imagine that it's the, it's the goodness of God that fuels this? And that should change everything for your life, not only for your personal faith, because it's the goodness of God that I'm a Christian, because he rejoices over me. But, you know, that should compel you. As a husband, your number one job is to show the goodness of God to your wife. That's hard. That's your job, man. If you have children, men and women, it's your goal, it's your job to say, God's goodness is compelling me to show God's goodness to my daughter and to my son. As a church, we gather together to display God's goodness to each other and to a lost and broken world that is seeking goodness all over the place, and they need Christ. That's our mission. That's our goal. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. God, I pray that by your grace you would compel us, that you would give us glimpses of your glory constantly, that we would taste and see, Lord, that you are good. Like like earth that receives water and is thankful would blossom all kind of crazy good fruit that is pleasing to you and that serves your people well. God, I pray that you would take our hardened hearts and soften them. God, that you would take our stubborn minds and humble them, that you would take our our fearfulness and remove the fear, remove the pride. God, that we would have ongoing trust in you, Jesus, relational trust in you. God, that we would cling to you, that true repentance is not only releasing the things that we hold so tightly in our hand in which we find security, but God, it's also grabbing you and never letting go. And I thank you, Lord, that you never let go of us but rather you embrace us like a father picking up a young child and singing over him, singing over her. God, you are so good to us. May your goodness uh, be displayed in our lives. God, I pray that you would do amazing things for your people, God, so that you would receive great glory and that we would experience great joy together as a community of, of believers, as seekers, as doubters, as skeptics, as broken people who are scared and prideful. God, that all together as broken people, we would experience your goodness together and together grow toward maturity, together progress in the faith, together experience belief and repentance, together experience your goodness, God, both for now and for eternity. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.